Did you know that when our founding fathers created Congress, there were only supposed to be 35,000 constituents to every member of Congress? It's now over 700,000. I learned this from Ali Velshi and his guest, Daniela Allen, who wrote a whole book on the subject. And apparently there are two options for how to possibly expand our Congress. Neither of them get us anywhere near that 35,000. When the founders were establishing the first iterations of the U.S. government, the purpose of the House of Representatives was proportional representation. It wasn't its only function in the founders' eyes. In the Federalist Papers, James Madison wrote that those elected to the House are, quote, to be the great body of the people of the United States, end quote. The Washington Post columnist Danielle Allen has written extensively on the need for House reform, and in a recent column, she points out some key principles that the founders hoped that the House of Representatives would ensure. Two of those principles were popular sovereignty, meaning that the governance is at the will of the people, and due dependence on the people, meaning that representatives would be beholden to their voters rather than to their donors. Allen echoes James Madison's point, quote, the principle of popular sovereignty pointed toward a governmental frame that would flex and adjust with the ever-changing shape of the people. The House was supposed to provide the necessary elasticity, turning over every two years and continuously growing, end quote. When the House was established, the founders decided that they would have one representative per 35,000 constituents, with each state having at least one representative. Initially, the House was designed to have some flexibility. Congress was supposed to grow and reapportion itself as the population of the nation increased and shifted, and it did, until about 100 years ago, when Congress capped the number of representatives at 435, somewhat arbitrarily. And despite 100 years and nearly 200 million more American citizens, the size of the House of Representatives hasn't changed. Today, House members represent roughly 762,000 people each. 20 times more than initially designed by the founders. That number's on track to reach 1 million by mid-century. Of similarly operating developed nations included in a group called the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, America is the only democracy that has not adjusted the size of its legislative assembly. We have the highest representation ratio of any comparable democracy by a very long shot. Again, our average number of constituents per representative sits at more than 760,000. The next highest comparable nation is Japan. Their ratio is roughly the, a third of ours. Danielle Allen lays out key reasons why a bigger house would serve principles, uh, our founding principles better. First, with an average of more than 760,000 people per representative, constituents are almost completely removed from their elected officials, and there aren't enough resources for office to properly meet, meet constituent needs. It's really impossible for lawmakers to actually understand the wants and needs of the people that they are supposed to represent, not only because of the sheer size of each district, but because priorities are often dictated by the loudest voice in the room. And with powerful and highly organized political action and lobbying groups, the loudest voice in the room is often whomever has the most money, not necessarily the voice of the people. And more seats means more options, more opportunities for representation, a wider range of viewpoints, and a body that more closely reflects the people it, it represents. Now, those who oppose house expansion might be, like the founders apparently were, concerned about the capacity of their physical building. But there's also a real hesitation about bigger government. Would a bigger house be able to get anything done? Would it really get us closer to Congress being a body of the people? One thing is clear. By effectively representing more people, elected officials are beholden to fewer of them. Danielle Allen, a columnist of the Washington Post, writes extensively about this. One of her recent pieces was titled, Just How Big Should the House Be? So let's do the math. Danielle Allen joins me now. She's the director of the Edmund and Lily Saffer Center for Ethics at Harvard University, founder of the Allen Lab for Democracy Renovation at Harvard, and author of several books, including the upcoming Justice by Means of Democracy. Danielle, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you, Ali. And you did a great job reviewing the issue just now. I really appreciate that. I appreciate that, but thanks to you for publishing on this because it makes us think about things that we don't often think about. I think the reaction of most people, if you ask them, is that we have way too many people in Congress. Uh, we don't get enough done there anyway. But when you look at other countries and you compare them, they have a lot more representatives. So give me a sense of what expanding the House would do for the American people. 
That's right. I mean, it's true. A lot of people do say, gosh, you know, I can't stand Congress as it is. What are you talking about, Danielle? More of them really come on now, or they'll say, I haven't thought about that at all. And that's a really interesting idea. And it's true that then when you make the comparison to other countries, you realize the British Parliament is bigger than our House of Representatives is, so is the German Bundestag. Their populations are much smaller. They still have functionality. The really important thing is that if we could shrink the size of districts again, bringing representatives closer to their constituents, you'll get more responsiveness. You'll get better constituent services, but you'll also get what the founders call due dependence on the people. It will mean that it's easier to to hold elected officers accountable, money will have less influence than it currently does in our politics. One of the things that you write about is the impact that social media has had on democracy, and that social media fundamentally undermines the role of uh, the, the representative. Here's what you wrote. James Madison anticipated that the breadth of a broad republic, our very rivers and mountains, would protect against the formation of dangerous factions because it would be hard for people with extreme views to find each other and to coordinate. Because of geographic dispersal, people would have to go through representatives to get their views into the public sphere, and this would mitigate the impact of faction, end quote. Tell me about that. Absolutely. So, I mean, the beginning idea, the founders were very concerned about factionalism and tribalism. They lived through a polarized time full of conflict as well. In the 1780s, the first Congress, you know, couldn't get a quorum, they couldn't pass a budget, they couldn't pay war debts. They worked on the Constitution. They decided to write the Constitution to solve those problems. The solution was supposed to be a stronger system of representation that meant, you know, not direct democracy and the like, but it was also the idea that geographic dispersal itself would keep people with extreme views from finding each other. They would have to go through representatives to get their views into the public sphere. That obviously doesn't work anymore. We cannot depend on geographic dispersal to be a break on faction. So we really have to find other approaches. Increasing the size of the House, having smaller districts will help. I think of this partly as solving, say, the George Santos problem. Why was it possible for George Santos to get through with the amount of fraud that he had on his record? Partly because there wasn't enough direct knowledge of him within the community of people voting for him. So if we could bring that ratio down again, we can restore the notion that people are really more connected to their constituents, that their constituents can know who they are, we can better process um, who's getting elected into office. You co-chaired a bipartisan commission on democracy renovation uh, with the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. The commission recently published a report, and it floats seven potential paths to expanding the House. Uh, and depending on which one it, you look at, it, it could increase the House from uh, 500,000 to 500 uh, members. One of the plans is more than 9,000 representatives. And some of these options rely on historic ratios. If you take the nation's founding ratio of 35,000 constituents per representative, you'd end up with about 9,000 400 representatives. So what, what path makes more sense and how big should we get? Well, there are two realistic paths on the table right now, both put forward by members of Congress. Uh, Representative Blumenhauer from Oregon has put forward a number of 585 based on what I call the deferred maintenance rule, and I'll explain that in a second. And then Representative Kasten of Illinois has put forward a number of 572 based on what's called the Wyoming rule. So the deferred maintenance rule is the idea that when we capped the House in 1929 at 435, ever since then, states have had to lose seats to give them to other states that were growing. So as we stayed 435, you know, California, for example, just lost a seat so that another seat could go to a smaller state, as an example. Um, so if we took back all those seats that have been given away over the century, that would bring us to that number of 585. We would catch up, really, for deferred maintenance, um, where we should have just been adding seats as we were growing rather than asking big states to give them to small states. Um, the Wyoming rule would take the population of the smallest state, Wyoming, and make that the basis for the ratio between a representative and a constituent. That would put the ratio at about 580,000 people and would give us 572 members of the House. That's still more than 10 times bigger, 15 times bigger than what the, the founding fathers were thinking about. Daniel, there's so much to talk about here. I thank you for uh, the work you've done on this and the work you'll continue to do on it. I encourage our readers to sort of catch up to this topic that we don't think about enough, uh, and, and you and I will talk about it some more. Thank you. Thanks so much, Ellie. Take good care. Shortcast Club.